Hey cuties, welcome to the first ever bonus episode of Stupid Cute. Today, Aaron and I sit down with Dr. Patrick Myers to discuss all things alcoholism. He's a registered psychologist and an addictions counselor, and he takes us through the do's and don'ts of supporting a loved one, family member, spouse, friend that is on their recovery journey. He walks us through the five stages of change and how to navigate them. And we go in depth about the different support groups out there for somebody embarking on their recovery journey. Honestly, Aaron and I learned a lot in this episode and we came out of it feeling a lot more knowledgeable. I really think that this episode is going to benefit the supporter of an alcoholic the most. We have so many resources in here and so many tips on how to even just talk with someone who is struggling with sobriety or maybe has had a relapse. We talk about the importance of compassion in these dynamics and how frustrating it can be for the supporter. This episode is a lot less personal, but I still really encourage you to check in with yourself and make sure that this is a good time to go forward listening. Anytime we talk about alcoholism, it can be a sensitive topic. So if this is not the time for you to listen to this episode, don't worry. We will be back next week week and this episode will be in the catalog for Evie so you can always come back at a better time. We love you guys and we're ready to do this so let's dive in. Patrick thank you so much for joining us. This is gonna be fun. We're so excited to have you here. Lately, Haley and I have been chatting amongst ourselves and with other people who are going through a journey of healing from addiction, specifically with alcoholism, who have recently chosen a path of sobriety. And so we really wanted your take on a number of things. And one of those main things is what is an unhealthy relationship with alcohol look like? Well, an unhealthy relationship with alcohol looks like different things to be different people. It sort of depends on the person themselves. Uh, but basically what an unhealthy relationship with an alcohol looks like is if the alcohol is interfering with relationships, such as your loved one, your friends, your family, that kind of thing. If it's interfering with your work, uh, you know, you're not getting stuff done at work or people are complaining about alcohol in your breath or whatever it might be. And then the last one is this when alcohol starts interfering with things that you do for self-care. So that goes all the way to the very basics of showering and, and, you know, stuff like that all the way up to, you know, if you have a favorite sport, you know, soccer or something like that. And all of a sudden you've dropped out of the league just because the alcohol has kind of taken over. Now, it, it's the same with other substances as well, but especially with alcohol. Those are the three sort of criteria that we look at is relationships, work, and self-care. Right. So somebody could still technically be a heavy drinker then, but if it's not affecting those three things, like would that be a flag or it's really those? Yeah, that would be something that could happen, yes. Then you also have the second component of heavy drinking. When you're talking to people in the trade, we don't have something called alcoholism. There's no such okay. thing. Okay, so we have what we refer to as substance abuse, which is basically what I just described. And then you also have substance dependency. And so substance dependency is where you need higher and higher amounts of the same substance to get the same effect. 
then when you all of a sudden go cold turkey, then there is this withdrawal symptom. I don't know if either of you drink uh, coffee in the morning, you know, like if you're drinking four cups of coffee in the morning and all of a sudden you run out of coffee, there's a chance that you might feel a headache the next day. That's mm -hmm. the withdrawal symptom, right? One cup of coffee used to give you that zip, but now you're up to four cups of coffee. So it could be alcohol, it could be marijuana, it could be, you know, heroin, cocaine, alcohol, any of these substances. Mm -hmm. Can you be dependent without abusing the substance? Like, do those go exclusively hand in hand? Where are the differences in those then? Basically, in general, we say no, but is it possible? There's always something possible. Right. Right. I mean, the thing is, is, you know, you drink a lot of coffee. Would we call you dependent? Possibly. Is it interfering with your life? Probably not. Right. So when we're talking about alcohol, in theory, yes. Mm -hmm. As to whether or not that's actually true, then that's another question. Mm -hmm. Usually when we're dependent on substances, it's interfering with those other things too. Right. I imagine it's possible then for people who are struggling with this and having a hard time with those three factors where maybe they don't yet experience it's interfering for them, but the people around them are experiencing that. Do you see that often? A lot, yes. And uh, it, I see two problems with the caregivers. Is they notice the problem well before the person who has mm -hmm. the problem. And I'm not going to say, again, I'm not going to say always, but often. And they start complaining and, and the person goes, yeah, yeah, whatever. But then there's another interesting aspect that happens. And this is something that's really kind of interesting. It's called state memory. Now, where we first discovered state memory was we were watching university students writing exams. And if the university student wrote the exam in the big exam hall with the gymnasium, you got rows and rows of desks and you're there scribbling away compared to those students who were doing their exams in the exact same classroom with the same teacher that they had taken the course with that these people who were doing it in the same classroom were scoring higher marks. Why? Because there is a state that is involved with the classroom. You know, you think back, what was diencephalon again? Uh, Jesus, I don't remember. Uh, and then you start scanning the, the blackboard and then all of a sudden it dawns on you. Oh yeah, he was standing over there. That was about a month ago, diencephalon. Uh, and it starts coming back to you. Whereas in this gym, you have none of those cues, right? Mm -hmm. And so the same thing happens with alcohol. What happens is, is that when you're sober, you are, say, for instance, Aaron point one. You have one drink. Now you're Aaron point two. It affects her a little bit, but you can see that she's still relatively all there. Then we have a second drink, and now all of a sudden we have Aaron point three. And now you can start to see that the effect of the alcohol is starting to have an effect, but uh, we can still recognize Aaron in there. Then we have three drinks, and now we have Aaron point four. Now we have four drinks, and it usually seems to happen at about the four drink stage. Mm. Now, there are some people who have developed a tolerance where it'll be higher. People like me who are teetotalers, it's not to say I don't drink, it's just I drink very seldom, where just one is... <laughs> Throw me. So it's when we go to the fourth drink. Now, what happens is as an observer, Aaron's not there anymore. Hmm. What's there is 
alcohol Aaron. I can still recognize Aaron over here at drink three, but I can no longer recognize. And so I commonly get caregivers, spouses of, you know, this kind of thing who notice this and say, you know, I lose you after three drinks, you disappear, you go somewhere and this kind of thing. And that's really distressing for the spouse. And of course, the person who's drinking goes like, I don't notice any difference. Right. I'm still me. But no, actually, you're not you not quite. And so this has to do with this idea of state memory is that we start to become different people at a certain stage of alcohol intake. Mm. So naturally, like the symptoms or, you know, differences in these people when they're drinking, it really depends on the person, right? It, different things are going to come up per person. Very much so. It depends on the person. It depends on their physiology. So different genetics, different physiologies can affect the impact of alcohol, you know, your tolerance to alcohol, uh, your attitude towards alcohol. If you're going into alcohol with a bad attitude, guess what it's going to amplify the bad attitude. Whereas if you're going into alcohol with a relaxed attitude, guess what happens? I'm really mellow. If I'm going into it with a fun attitude, guess what? I'm going to be the life of the party. You know, there are all kinds of different factors that can contribute to this. There are a whole pile of things that would affect it. Though the way that alcohol shows out is different in different people, are there any like universal signs for someone trying to support somebody that maybe they're kind of entering a different stage in their relationship with alcohol or? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure the question you're asking if you're asking about the caregiver or about the person themselves. If you're talking about the person themselves, we have something that we call the stages of change. Mm. The first stage of change is called pre-contemplation. And this is the stage where basically I don't recognize I have a problem. Mm. Then we have contemplation. And this is the stage where, oh, yeah, you know, my alcohol gets in the way sometimes. But, you know, I'm not exactly sure how to go about getting help. So that's contemplation. Mm-hmm. Then there is, and this is the stage that I always forget, it's the middle stage, which is that stage where we're going like, I think I got a problem. I got to find some help, but I I just don't know where to get the help. I I really want the help, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can see that we slowly progress through these stages. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the next stage, which is the action stage, which is where the person actually starts going like, yep. I'm going to go to AA or, yep, I'm going to go to rational recovery. I'm going to see a psychologist. I'm not sure. But they actually are taking the steps. The next step is then called maintenance and or relapse. And it sort of depends. Some people maintain their sobriety for a long, long time. Some people relapse. And this is in the old model of stages of change. Now, there are newer models out there which are talking about what I would refer to as controlled drinking. So learning how to control your drinking, Hmm. right? But the older stages, basically, they call it, you know, relapse or maintenance. I'm either going to stay sober or I'm going to relapse. And I could relapse back to any one of these stages. I could relapse all the way back to pre-contemplation. I could relapse back to contemplation. I could relapse back to the action. It, It doesn't really matter. So that's for the substance abuser. This is sort of a general guideline that we come up with. Then with the caregiver of, we see people who are putting inordinate 
amounts of energy into their spouse or into their child. And the energy is both physical and emotional and psychological. And these people are losing a lot of sleep. And this can, in the long run, lead to, I mean, you know, my moniker is stress less because for me, everything is based on stress. And therefore, the stress then can lead to all kinds of other things, both physical diseases and mental disorders. Hmm. And so if I stay stressed for too long, I may all of a sudden develop an anxiety disorder or if there's really crippling headaches, you know, migraines kind of thing. And so you will find that the caregivers, you notice, start to notice that they start running out of energy and they stop being nice, right? Mm -hmm. I don't get enough sleep. And what am I going to be? I'm going to be kind of growly in the morning. Right. I was sort of looking at that from two different angles. I'm not sure which angle you were after there, Haley. No, they're both, they're both really interesting. And honestly, like, I think we're kind of trying to get at both, both angles here because yep. it's always helpful to understand, right. What someone is going through as they're going through these stages. Um, and then also, I think it's always helpful to also understand maybe from the supporters point of view, because you can only do so much, you know, and I know that obviously you can't make anybody do anything and nothing's going to stick until, you know, that person is ready to go through all the steps and, and what they need to do to get themselves right. Well, and I would have a tendency to suggest that yes, but this is where the science of psychology and alcohol sort of mesh together. And we say, for the most part, you're right, Haley, but to some degree, there are ways that we can do to perhaps enlighten people to speed their process to get to a place where they're going to want the healing yeah that's what i was hoping and i'll describe that i'll describe that in a little while but there are ways that we can try and these are you know scientifically tested and we find that yeah there are certain ways that we might be able to so are the two of you familiar with the serenity prayer yes Grant me the serenity, accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change those things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And so if you have somebody who is an alcoholic, the wisdom to know is, is that I want to expend some energy towards this individual. Why? Because I care for them. But the wisdom also says, and I have to keep some of that energy for myself because otherwise I'm no good if the person finally in 10 years all of a sudden comes to and gets off their substances. And now I'm a complete wreck. I'm not much good to them anymore. So I need to find that balance. And that's where the wisdom, but then the courage is to start looking at, okay, so might there be a way that somehow I can get to this person? Somehow I can help them speed up this process of change, right? And so I'm I'm the kind of person who I don't give up hope, but I also want to look at the realistic point of view of the fact that, yeah, this person's been an alcoholic for 20 years. That's much different than somebody who's been an alcoholic for one year, right? That's a much more ingrained habit for 20 years. So I look at that and I go, statistically, now, this is the problem with statistics is statistics talk about the general population. So statistically, the person who has the 20 year habit doesn't have as good a chance of getting off their substance as the person with just a one year habit. But that's when we survey a whole pile of people that are all included in different cultures, different ages, different body physiques, all this kind of stuff. And there are people who you look at who have been 20-year addicts who all of a sudden something happens 
and all of a sudden they stop, right? So you have to be careful. Mm. So at least one person somewhere along the way has gone and recovered from alcohol just off their own accord mm. with any outside pressure, at least one. Mm. But when we talk statistics, you have to be careful of interpreting that as fact, okay? I'm wondering where does science meet like emotional relationship in being gentle and supportive in helping speed up this process for your loved ones? Yeah. It could be touchy, I'm sure, for the person experiencing the addiction or dysregulation or dependency. Absolutely. It can be very touchy. And I've had some real horror stories of of people who have kids who are addicted to one thing or another. And mm. oh, some of the stuff that they go through, I'm just like, wow. But that more compassionate stance is something that we want to try to engender. It's the same principle. Unfortunately, children and adults are very much alike in that science will tell us that if we use corporal punishment on children, they're going to learn very little about what they should be doing. Whereas if we're just totally loving to children and just sort of let them do whatever they want, then again, the outcome is not going to be great. And so what we find is, is that a small amount of firmness and a large amount of compassion or what we might call reward hmm. is the best strategy. And that happens the same with adults. The person who is the caregiver of or the lover of wants to make sure that they take care of themselves. They want to make sure that they establish some firm boundaries, but they don't want to go all the way over into that, that cranky state where they're constantly criticizing the other person. You have to change. You have to change. And, you know, unfortunately, I have to say, I've been down that path mm. way, 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 way before I started psychology. I was involved with a person who had a substance, I would say, abuse problem. And I did everything wrong. I did absolutely mm. everything wrong. And unfortunately, that relationship failed. I was critical. I was controlling and all this kind of stuff. So if I go and criticize the, the person who has a substance problem up one side, down the other, and saying, you have to stop, you have to do this, mm. you have to, you have to, have to, then what happens? Basically, they're going to say, no, yeah. and they entrench themselves even further. Now, once in a while, that works. Again, like I say, nothing here is a solid fact. But what we find is, is that most of the times, having a firm boundary and then being compassionate hmm. is probably the most beneficial way to go. Can we embody the mindset and narrative that plays through the the supporter, the family member, the spouse, and just discuss, I guess, how to maintain that compassion? Because I can imagine that after so many times of like, hey, you know, the gentle, like, what do you think? And the, the yep. supportive, like, let's push this along. At some point, like, that's got to be frustrating for that supporter. And so how do you maintain that? And this is something that the supporter has to sort of take a look at their own beliefs, their own mm. desires, their own needs, their own whatever. It's the same with the treatment programs out there. There is the supporter who makes the dedication to their spouse for better or for worse. Great. Mm. And then there are the spouses or even the friends of who it's like, wait a minute, a relationship is supposed to be something that's reciprocal. Mm. And you have to take a look at yourself first. 
interventions, you know, as they are known, don't usually work. Hmm. But sometimes they do. But usually, statistically, they don't work very well. Right. Right. Abstinence. It doesn't work very well. Hmm. For some people, it works like a charm. And I'm never going to take that away from them. And so for me to say to you, you have to quit drinking, you know, maybe that's not going to work so well. So maybe what I have to think about is, first of all, the boys called me up for a hockey game tonight. So I'm going to go play hockey tonight. My mindset might be, dear, if you go out with your partners tonight and go drinking, I'll be having supper ready at six. At 630, I'll be putting your supper in the fridge. You know where to get it. You know how to use the microwave, mm. right? So I'm not condoning the drinking, but I'm also not fighting it. Right. Mm. Boundaries. Yeah. yeah. I want to have compassion for this person, but at the same time, I also don't want to condone it. Yeah. That's that saving energy for yourself thing, I suppose. Exactly. And, and this is where everyone has to decide on their own stance. How much compassion do I have in my gas tank? And how much do I want solid results right here, right now? Mm-hmm. Because unfortunately, sometimes the solid results are, yeah, we need to divorce. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, no, that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Could we dig into what that support looks like? I loved those, you know, five stages of change. I, I could see, you know, the support caregiver side on every single stage, and I imagine it looks quite different. And so for somebody who has said, you know, I, I'm making this change, I see this abuse or dependency in myself, and then they relapse or, you know, something happens, they slip up. And I'm hearing what you're saying in that, like, yeah, condoning corporal punishment, this stuff is not the way to go what would be the appropriate response the appropriate response would be to say okay so you relapsed huh and then hmm well what should we do to get back on the bandwagon again Hmm. and you notice what i did there number one i didn't express pleasure in the fact that this person relapsed you can see in my hmm that i'm not particularly happy but you don't hear me going like you idiot Right. You relapsed. Right? Shaming. Yeah. Right. I'm not going to shame the person. I'm just going to, hmm. And then I'm going to focus on the one thing that is changeable. The fact that the person relapsed happened when? It's already happened. It's already passed. Mm. I'm having this dissatisfaction, this unhappiness in the here and the now. Now, if I don't want to continue having the here and the now, there's only one thing I can do, and that is just aim for a different future. Mm. And so I ask, what can we do to get back on the bandwagon, right? What am I talking about? I'm talking about first we got to go shower, and then you got to go back to your rational recovery group, and then you got to go back to the gym. You haven't been hitting the gym for a while. Come on, you know, let's go to the gym again. And that gets the person back on track, whatever it might be. Right. And the other thing that I've done is if I'm committed to this relationship, you'll notice that I've used the we. What are we going to do? I'm not going to say, what are you going to do? And I'm also not going to say, what can I do to get you back on track? Because then I'm taking all the responsibility for your controlled drinking. Right. I'm going to say, what can we do? Now, if I don't care about the other person, if I'm about to divorce the other person, then it doesn't really matter. But assuming that you know that this person can be a good person, but you know that they're using substances and this is distressing to you and they do Mm -hmm. some stupid things on substances, which is distressing to you. Okay, so what can we do Mm -hmm. to get back on track? That's huge. 
the support and the boundaries, it's such a delicate balance. And that all seems very present in that it's response. It's an extremely delicate balance. And it's really, really hard to find. And as I say, way back when, this is before I got into psychology, I did everything wrong. Mm. Right? I tried to control. I tried to criticize. It just didn't work. I think that that's the natural response, right? It's there's something that's displeasing you. There's something that's likely affecting multiple aspects of your life, right? And whether it's our culture, society, innate, I don't know where we just go, I don't like this thing. I want it to stop. And so to remove ourselves, hold that boundary, have the compassion, like that's so difficult to do, right? Not having those self-care and tools and things for ourselves. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure people can relate. And what I'm saying is that is hard because that's not the way that we've been raised in our culture, right? Yes. In our culture, since we were this high, what were you taught? If I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah, That's what we've been taught, right? But is that mm -hmm. true? And the answer is, I would suggest no. So if I'm committed to this person, I want to know what can we do as a team to get us back on track. Right. And I will come up with some ideas. I expect the partner to come up with some ideas and hopefully through all our mashing of ideas, that's what makes us strongest is that there are similarities, but there are also differences. I'll come up with some ideas you didn't think about. You'd come up with some ideas I didn't think about and we tried them out. And that's what makes relationships so strong. I have a two-part question here. Okay, here um, we go. <laughs> um, first of all, as we're talking about this delicate balance and trying to find, you know, ways to hold our own boundaries and still be compassionate and supportive, I'm wondering, is there like support groups or somewhere that the supporter in this dynamic could get insight or help with that? And that's a really good question for both sides of the coin. I'm going to yeah. say that there are tons of different services out there. And the idea is to really investigate the service to make sure that it is what you are looking for. Hmm. Okay? If you believe in abstinence, then a great place to go would be AA. Unfortunately, statistically, you will find that AA's numbers are not that good. But for those people for whom AA works, oh man, you know, it works beautifully. Right. But then you have tons of other groups out there which take a different stance towards both sides of the table. And so I'm going to give you a name and a number. The name is called the Alcohol and Drug Information and Referral Service. This is basically the collective of all things addictions here in BC. They have a number. I don't know what their email or their uh, website is, but they have a phone number here in the lower mainland. The phone number is 604-660-9382. And this is for both the person who is using and for the loved one of they can phone for different organizations. Now, when we talk about AA and abstinence, we have Al-Anon, and Al-Anon is for the caregivers and loved ones and children of an alcoholic, for example. And we have those in other drugs as well. 
okay? But they have a tendency, now again, it's a tendency because these are groups and each group is a little bit different. So you want to try out a couple mm-hmm. of different groups, right? So these groups are not led by a trained therapist. They're led by people just like you and me kind of thing. People show up and they get support and they get some advice. You know, well, I did this with my husband. Maybe you could try that with your husband. Or, you know, what we did is we took a trip to Mexico and that just seemed to take all the stress off his shoulders and things are going great now. And and the nice thing about AA and about Al-Anon is you get to share with each other some ideas that may or may not work. Okay. Right. But then you have lots of other groups out there. There is an organization called CRAFT. So community I can't remember if it's a reinforcement or resource, I'm not sure. Community reinforcement or resource and family training craft. There is groups specifically for women. There are different types of therapies, which are going to include a lot of mindfulness-based exercises. And so those would be things like ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. There are groups that do that. There is the MBSR, which is the mindfulness-based stress reduction. You have the DBT, dialectical behavior therapy for, you know, what am I going to do when I'm getting stressed and want to use? You know, I'm, I'm more of a cognitive psychologist, so I really like rational recovery for the person who's using. I'm assuming that they also have one for the caregivers of, but rational recovery is one that I particularly like. You know, there's cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, these kinds of things. There's all kinds of different ways in. And, you know, if you're the the, the person who's using, you want to take a look at what is it that I need? Right. right. I need a, a bunch of peers telling me, hey, dude, you know, um, here's how I quit. Or, hey, dude, I can be a sponsor for you. And you can just phone me up whenever you have that urge kind of thing. So if that's what works for you, then great, use it. Mm-hmm. But if you're more rationally oriented, more cognitively oriented, then I would say, let's go to rational recovery, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But really go to this alcohol and drug information and referral services, 604-660-9382 because they are the sort of the the landing ground for anything addictions in Hmm. BC. Awesome. The second part to my question, you kind of already answered then. I was going to ask, what is step one for the person at that stage of change that's looking to make steps towards recovery? So obviously you're saying there's so many different treatment groups and centers and you got to find what works best for you. You're saying step one is definitely to call this number as kind of the like umbrella to all of that. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That would definitely be the step one. And then I'd actually say, no, I would take it back even one step before that. And I would say, take a look at yourself and ask yourself, what kinds of treatment do you look like, right? Mm. Are you looking at controlled drinking? Are you looking at abstinence? Or are you looking at more something that's more mindfulness, compassionately oriented? You know, and I would say, take a look at yourself first, then go to this thing, then take the step to sign up and get into a group. Now, there's one other thing, and that is, is if you are dependent on the substance, I would highly recommend because the Alcohol, Drug, and Information Referral Service also has detox centers. Mm. If you are a heavy, heavy user and you're dependent on alcohol, it would be best that you go to a detox center 
to get off the alcohol because they're going to be, you know, staffed by nurses. They're going to give you some medications to ease the withdrawal symptoms, you know, any of these drugs. You have to be careful because some people can actually do a lot of damage to themselves if they all of a sudden just cut cocaine, cold turkey, or if they cut right. alcohol, mm -hmm. cold turkey. You have to be careful that's damaging to the body because the body has gotten used to having so much. And all of a sudden, you know, it'd be like not drinking water for a week. Your body would be going like, yeah. ouch, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's a matter of if you're, if you're using heavily, I fully recommend you want to do detox first then remember this idea of state memory. If you're drinking too much during the sessions, well, you'll remember it all when you're drinking, but will you remember it before you drink, when you first get the urge? And the right. answer is probably not. Right. right. Did that certainly help you? And then, you know, once you get into whatever it is that you're doing, follow through with showing up and crying out what they have to say. You know, again, like I say, is say, for instance, you went to MBSR. And you're going like, oh, man, this is way too slow. I need something that's going to move a little faster. Okay, good. Back it up and maybe take mm -hmm. rational recovery instead. Right. You don't have to like lock into one thing. You can no. just keep trying till you find what works for you. That's the key is you need to keep on going till, until you find something that works for you. You know, everyone is unique and there is no one way to treatment. Mm -hmm. There are lots of people who think that there is only one way, but I'm going to say, no, there are multiple ways to treatment. Are there groups of people who are more predisposed to addiction or are there like warning signs around trauma or history that might lead someone down this path? So there are a couple of uh, people who are a little bit more prone to using substances. There is a component of substances that is genetic but don't jump on that bandwagon because the component is very small it, you know there's going to be a lot of psychiatrists who are going to disagree with me and they're going to say oh there's a huge genetic component and i'm going to go mm, no it's a small genetic component but there is if there's been heavy alcohol use in your family for generations past then you're just going to taste that alcohol and it's going to twig something in you where the chances of mm -hmm. you tasting that alcohol, you're going to go, whoa, as opposed to when I first had alcohol, I went like, okay, so this is different. So there is a very small component that might be genetic. There is a larger component that I refer to as learned drinking mm -hmm. or learned substance use. You know, dad drinks, dad gives me alcohol, so I drink too. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to become an alcoholic because mm -hmm. you go to Europe and you see these kids who they're old enough to reach the top of the bar. They're old enough to drink. Right. Yeah. You quite often see a whole family in the bar eating dinner. Mom and dad are having a beer and the kids are having shandies, which is half beer, half, you know, lime and, and ginger ale and stuff like that. Again, that learned stuff isn't necessarily the big part of it either. But I would say that learned is a little bit bigger than the genetic. Then a big component of it is, yes, as you suggested, trauma. The people who really get into trouble with substances, quite often there is a trauma that is going on there that, you know, you know just <laughs> take a look at the First Nations and the kind of generational trauma these people have suffered. 
but we turn our noses up on them when we see them in on Hastings Street, where we get scared of them on Hastings Street, not realizing hmm. what the environment was that they grew up in, right? And so trauma is a huge, huge element of addictions. And almost always when I ask a person, you know, like, and I go back into their past, ultimately, very often when I have somebody who's struggling with alcohol use, quite often I find some kind of a trauma that happened back in their childhood. And then the last group of people who are our risk group are teenagers. Come mm. on, guys. You're trying to tell me that you didn't inhale when you were a teenager. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to be Bill Clinton. I'm going to say, yeah, in my late teens, in my early 20s, I inhaled. And I have to say that sometimes I enjoyed it too. Right? I drank too much. Sometimes that kind of stuff. Teenagers are renowned for experimentation. Right. And most of us survived those dangerous moments. <laughs> when we drank or used drugs in our teen years, but there's some of us who don't. And so this is something where, you know, I don't want to condone my teenagers drinking, but at the same time, I can't really come down too hard on my teenager because mm. I did it. Right. I, but I also don't want to condone. So I want to say, hey, you know, how are we going to get you home safe? Mm -hmm. Rather than getting in a car with your drunk friend, how are we going to get you home? Mm -hmm. right. So I'm not condoning it, but I'm also being compassionate and saying, okay, I want you around because I know you've got this teenage phase you have to go through and then eventually <laughs> become a responsible adult. Thing, right? right. Or at least most of us, <laughs> most of us. That's awesome. Can we ask you some rapid fire questions from our audience? Okay, I'll try. <laughs> One of the questions that came through was how to talk to someone who uses alcohol as a crutch after a hard day. So what is this person doing? This person is using the alcohol or the substance to basically do this with the day. Push it aside. So again, it would be a matter of, it depends on how drunk they're getting. You know, if they're only having two or three beer, then that might be a good strategy. But I still remember seeing this therapist who was a relatively famous therapist, and she talked about her husband, who was an even more famous therapist, and he used to drink six double martinis a night because he was so stressed during the day. And I'm going like, and he was famous? Famous for what? Right? You know, having one or two drinks might be a good coping mechanism, as long as it stays to one or two drinks. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm taking a glass like this and sit there in front of the TV, drinking my vodka, trying to push my day away, that's not going to be very helpful because tomorrow, guess what? I go back to the same crappy job. Right. So having a drink might be a good way to start your, okay, I can cope with this. But, you know, going beyond two or three, I'm going to go, yeah, you probably want to talk to your partner. And how do you talk to your partner? It would be a matter of, again, the what can we do? But I would also do other things. I would also say, hey, hun, they they've started up this pickleball at the community center. It looks like a lot of fun. I'd really love you to come and try it out with me. Do you want to come and play pickleball with me tonight? What is my number one intervention for just about everything? Exercise. Mm. There's just been a huge research study where they looked at all these different treatments and guess what they found? 
exercise has a better success rate than therapy and or drugs. And I'm mm -hmm. talking about legal drugs, you know, that, that you would get from a psychiatrist or your doctor. They have better effect with exercise. So one of the things I'm going to do, if my partner is doing it, I'm going to try and get them out for a walk. I'm going to try and get them out for pickleball. Whatever it might be, I'm going to try and start encouraging them into other behaviors, especially those that are vigorous. They're going to help me be able to push that day away. The mm -hmm. problem is, though, quite often what you have is the spouse who comes home, he's had a rough day, he wants those beers, you know, and, and using a very stereotyped example, please excuse me, you're busy taking care of two kids who are running around and you're trying to cook supper for the whole affair and you don't really have time to go out for that walk or to go play pickleball, right? Yeah, now we're looking at more the... Well, supper's at six o'clock and the old idea of what can we do. Mm -hmm. But then you might also get into what's happening for the individual. And this is what's called motivational interviewing. And this has been backed up by lots of science. Basically, what we're doing is we are reflecting the emotions as to what's happening in the moment. And then we are digging for the unspoken desire. Wow, looks like you had a really rough day at work today. Looks like it's so rough that you're going to need three beers today. I bet you wish work wasn't so rough. Mm. So what am I doing? I'm starting to emphasize. I'm slowly changing the conversation towards what does the person really want? They're using the alcohol to get away from their day. What do they really want? They want a more fulfilling job. They want their boss to chill out. They want their colleagues to chill out. They want an easier job. They want whatever, a more creative job. I don't know what it is that they want. This is what they want. So I'm, you know, I'm assuming that I know the person well enough. And so I'm going after that unspoken desire as to why do I need three beers to calm mm -hmm. down? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Next question. That wasn't very rapid fire of me, was it? <laughs> It was a great answer. I'm sure it's going to help a lot. Okay. Um, another one of our listeners sent in and said, how do you let go of the responsibility of caring for a parent with addiction who refuses to acknowledge they have a problem, even though they're basically rock bottom? And again, I would be reflecting what's happening emotionally and why. And I'd be reflecting the underlying desire that's happening there. Even as the child, how do you protect that dynamic of I'm the child? Oh, okay. So I thought you meant adult child. My apologies. My apologies. Well, I mean, I'm- You're talking like this. a 10-year-old. I don't know. Maybe that's my own trauma and shit. Yeah. Probably newly adult. <laughs> With an adult child, again, I'm going to establish some boundaries. I'm going to, you know, this person is in denial. This is what motivational interviewing was all about, was getting the person through the first three steps of the stage of right. pain, right? Until right, the right. person finally said, where's a yeah. good treatment center that I can go to? And then I'm going to say, go here. And then the next time they come see me, I'm going to say, so how was your first visit at this treatment center? And they're going to go, it was great. Or they're going to say it sucked. And I'm going to say, oh, okay, sorry. Let's try this treatment option. Right. Okay. So it all comes back to them boundaries, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the boundaries and it's the, I'm going to use the motivational interviewing going like, Dad, man, oh man, it's been 60 years that you've been working at this really difficult job. And the only way that you have to cope is, is with alcohol. And man, I can't imagine how stressful it's been supporting us all these years. 
I bet you would like your kids to support you for a change, wouldn't you? And I, again, I'm not, you know, I don't know who I'm talking to. So I would assume that the person knows what they're talking to. And so they're speaking right. to the unspoken desire. Mm hmm. A similar type of thing that people might want to look up is called nonviolent communication, which has this similar kind of thing, the empathy and then the desire. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now for the child, what I would really want to do is get that child in touch with, and, and this is a field of research that we call resilience. Two kids raised in equally traumatic households, except for one kid has an auntie or one kid has a really compassionate teacher that although the teacher was there in grade one, the teacher continues to be there through two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, all the way through kind of thing, right? So that okay. we have that one compassionate other who we can escape to and, and be taught, here's the real world. Dad's kind of sick or mom's kind of sick. Here's the real world kind of thing. Right. And so for the resilience of a young child, I would be wanting to set up some resources for that child. That would be something where they can get that support, where they can be fed properly, where they can be taught properly, where they can be taught to say please and thank you properly, this kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. And so that, yeah, unfortunately, this kid has got to go back to the abusive household, perhaps. But at the same time, we want them to have this other place to escape to, mm -hmm. auntie's house or the teacher after school. And I, you know, I'm constantly talking to this teacher for an hour after school. Mm -hmm. A support outside of your yeah. home. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's even the next sense. door neighbor, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've got one last one for you. Perfect. Here, Patrick. Here we go. I think I know the answer to it, but I'm curious how you're going to respond. It says, my partner used to be into drugs and alcohol. He's changed and hasn't done that for years. Do you think one day he might get back into it? And is there signs to watch out for? Thank you in advance. Do I think that the person might get back into it? Yeah. Can I guarantee that the person will get back into it? No. Are there a lot of people who don't get back into it? Yeah. So the key would be to... Notice abnormal behaviors, notice uh, showing up late for supper, you know, things like this. Um, remember, I was telling you about this partner that I had before I got into psychology. So this is like, I'm an old fart here. So this was like probably, what, 35 years ago, maybe 40 years ago. What happened was they had this really interesting quirk of going to the restaurant, having a glass of wine and the glass of wine, just they're drunk. And I'm going like, ooh, here's a real lightweight with alcohol. Me too, right? I've met my match. <laughs> no, actually what it was, was this individual was preloading mm -hmm. before we went into the restaurant, down a half a mechie of, of vodka, then go out, immediately get the alcohol, and then appear drunk. And hmm. I'm like, that didn't make sense. It took me a while for me to clue into what was happening. So anything that's an abnormal behavior, you want to check it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the person's gone back to substances. Right. Right. So abnormal behavior might also be that this person is getting bullied at work. Abnormal behavior might be that this person is also having an affair. I mean, there's so many different reasons. So this is mm -hmm. where we want to establish a good communication pattern with our partner to really be there with our partner to really sort of understand their stresses and whatnot. And then if they do relapse, don't freak out. 
<laughs> don't freak out. That's the worst thing that you can do. I mean, internally freak out. Yes. <laughs> Go to your best friend and freak out. Go to the gym and punch that punching bag and freak out. Sure. Yes. But mm -hmm. don't freak out to your partner that they right. relapsed. Instead, mm -hmm. it's going like, oh, really? I thought this was gone. Okay. Right. What can we do to get right. us back on track? Right. Here's a little story. I had one fellow, for him, AA worked really, really well. He got shipped out of town for an extended period of time with his company. And so he was in this place where it was relatively barren. There was nothing to do. You know, the work was really hard. The whole works. And he had been abstinent for 20 years. Wow. And there was very little phone service to his support network or the whole works. It was just... <laughs> I don't know how I would have survived, let alone how he did it. Anyways, one of his colleagues said, oh, man, you look really stressed. Here, have a toke. And the next thing the guy knows is he went on a four-day bender, mm -hmm. right? And he did everything. And he got fired. But wow. instead of slinking home, the first thing he did is he got home and he admitted to his wife, dear, I fell off the wagon. Number two is she didn't even have to ask. He committed himself to, there's a saying in AA, 90 meetings in 90 days. So he committed himself to going to that. He contacted his old um, support sponsor. network. Sponsor, thank you. Uh, he admitted to, to his wife and then he came running to me. Hmm. And I'm going, this guy knows how to handle himself. And I said that to him, you know what you're doing. You had a slip up. It's okay. I didn't chastise him. I said, it's okay. It was an innocent slip up. You were in a really, really bad situation. Now you get to learn from this situation. Don't ever separate yourself from your support network, basically a spouse and, you know, kids and other friends and whatnot. Now you know that about yourself, that these are the people who keep you healthy, happy, sober, the whole works, go for it. You get to learn from that. As opposed to being shamed for it, criticized for it, you know, divorced for it, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So is there a possibility? Yeah, very much so. Don't freak out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What an impossible question to answer because really like you don't know. Like there's no way to say I for sure never will relapse again because you really don't know. But I really love the way that you come to it with you know, no shame and look at this learning opportunity and now let's move forward. That's really, really beautiful. And I think a lot of people um, are going to, you know, get a lot of insight from this and and hopefully some new tools hopefully. to move forward in communication with their partners. Yeah. Or their, their people. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank you so much, Patrick. This has yep. been so insightful. I'm just going to do it real quick again, because, you know, this is the umbrella of all the addiction services, alcohol and drug information and referral service, 604-660-9382. There's my little thingy from them. That's perfect. We will put that in the show notes as well. So there's a physical perfect. copy you can read and refer back to cuties. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate this conversation. Thanks, guys. It was fun. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks. We hope, cuties, you got as much out of that as we did. It was packed with information. We are so grateful for Patrick. You can find him at stresslessconsulting.com. We will link that in the show notes for you. And as always, you can hang out with us throughout the week. You can sign up for the newsletter at stupid-cute.com, as well as find us on all of our personal and collective socials in the show notes below. Love you. Bye, cutie. Bye.